to us from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Please join me in a brief time of uh, prayer. Gracious God, merciful and loving Father. Lord, we pray now that as we begin to walk through these uh, opening verses of this book, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would enable us to rightly understand your word, to rightly divide the word of God, and that, uh, that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to apply what we learn. And through it all, Father, we pray that you would enable us to put outside of our minds all of the cares of this world that would seek to distract us. We pray that you would teach us your word and that you would make us more like your son. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as Paul begins the uh, main body of this letter, he begins with giving thanks to God for the church in Corinth and for what what God is doing uh, through them and to them and what God has been doing Uh, through them. And so I think it's worth noting that right off the bat, here is a church that is a mess, right? I mean, they've got all sorts of problems. I mean, every church has problems, but um, here it is just uh, laid out. And throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, more so than any other book, Paul just deals with one problem after another, after another, after another, after another. And, of course, we know, if you were here last week, know that a lot of this has to do with the fact that they are young believers. Uh, None of them grew up in a Christian home. They don't come from a Christian background. They've had no Christian influence other than hearing the gospel for the first time from Paul. They were saved out of an extreme uh, pagan uh, and amoral uh, society. And so they've got all kinds of problems that are happening in in the church, and yet Paul finds reason to be thankful for them. He finds a way to to see the good in them as a church. And Paul is not just offering platitudes. He's not just trying to butter them up um, before he drops the hammer on them, so to speak, because Paul doesn't do this with every church. 
This is not his typical MO. I mean, he does this more so, more often than not. But we know that in Galatians, he doesn't start by giving thanks. He just gets right to the point. Of course, we know that that was a letter, probably Paul's first letter, uh, written from Antioch as he receives a report from Galatia that the church that he has just left, just planted in Galatia, is already turning away from the gospel. So he hammers out the letter to the Galatians. Uh, quite rapidly and fires it off, and he wants to get right to the point and get them back on track before they drift too far away from the gospel. But we also see that Paul does not give thanks for the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians. He doesn't open that book with giving thanks to them. But of course, we know that if you read 2 Corinthians, it's pretty apparent, at least by the time you get to chapters 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians, that 1 Corinthians didn't land on that church in quite the way that Paul had hoped. Because by the time you get to chapters 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul is having to defend his apostolic ministry. He's having to defend his apostolic authority because there are people within the church in Corinth that are now saying, who does this guy think he is? You know, he's all big talk and writing, but in person, I mean, he's puny. Why should we listen to him? So apparently, after writing 1 Corinthians, there were some people in the church that were a little bit perturbed. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul really just sort of gets to the point in addressing the issues that need to be addressed. Nonetheless, however, Paul does not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Paul sees the glass as being half full. Paul is able to see the good in this church and the good that God is doing in them and through them. And I think we could learn a lot from Paul. Because again, I don't think Paul is being disingenuine. I don't think he's just offering platitudes. I don't think he's just buttering them up because, oh, this is going to be tough, so I want to you know, say something nice to them before I get into some difficult issues. I think Paul was the kind of person who was the eternal optimist. He could always see the good in people and in churches and in various situations. You see that in so many of his letters, for example, in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is in a Roman prison. He doesn't even know if he'll get out alive. He actually says that toward the end of chapter 1 of Philippians. But nonetheless, right in the middle of that chapter, despite the fact that he is in prison, doesn't know if he'll get out alive. He says, I thank God that the gospel continues to be proclaimed. Thankful for that. So we could learn a lot from Paul in being able to see the good in people and in churches and in any situation. Well, that's not to say that Paul simply had a Pollyanna kind of attitude, and that's certainly what, not what I'm saying here. Ultimately, I think Paul's eternal optimism stemmed from passages like Romans 8.28. That Paul knew, regardless of what was happening in his life, regardless of what is happening in your life, regardless of what is happening in the church in Corinth, regardless of the mess that they are in, regardless of what Paul was experiencing in that Roman prison in Philippians chapter 1, Paul always knew that all of this 
God is using for our good, for my good, for your good, and for his glory. And so he could rejoice and give thanks and could see the glass as being half full. And so he wants them to know up front that he is thankful for them. He does love them. He doesn't think they are entirely a mess. There's some good things that God is doing in them and with them and through them. And so it's for this reason that Paul is thankful for five things specifically that we will walk through verse by verse. And he begins by saying in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. So Paul is thankful for them that despite the problems that they are having, he is thankful because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. So right off the bat, he is thankful for God's saving grace that is given to them. And I think there's two important things that Paul is doing in this first verse, in verse 4, that need to be noted. First of all, he is reminding them that God's grace was given to them. They did not earn it. They did not deserve it. God doesn't bestow his saving grace upon the church in Corinth because they are so fabulous. Remember, Paul is dealing with a very prideful group of people. This was a church comprised of Greeks and Romans. These were the two most intelligent, civilized people in the known world at that time. And Paul wants to remind them that God's grace is a gift, and it is given to you. And by grace, what do I mean by grace? We have to define that, because grace is not simply what you say before your Thanksgiving meal. Grace, rather, is the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon those in positive demerit. And that's a definition that years ago I stole from Arthur Pink, so I'm not going to take credit for it. And what does he mean by that? The unmerited favor of God bestowed upon those in positive demerit. Well, here's a couple of illustrations to help you understand what Paul, or rather what uh, Arthur Pink means by that, and I think he's got the definition right. Oftentimes when you think of grace, we tend to think of grace as, you know, you're walking down the street and you see this homeless person who's uh, poor and homeless and living out on the street and and uh, you don't know them, and, and they don't know you. But out of the kindness of your heart, you decide to go over to them. And, uh, and you have a lot of resources at your disposal. And so you decide, look, I'm just going to, out of the kindness of my heart, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you a brand new, huge home. And I'm going to give you a nice car to drive. And I'm going to give you clothes to wear. And I'm going to put food on your table and money in your bank account. And I'm going to give you a good job that you enjoy. And I'm going to make sure that you are taken care of. Not because you've earned it. You don't deserve it. 
but simply because I want to do this for you. And oftentimes I've heard it said, well, that's, that's God's grace, right? It's what God does. But it actually falls short. This is what Arthur Pink wants us to understand in his book, The Sovereignty of God, that grace is seeing that homeless person, and they don't recognize you. They have no idea who you are, the same way that in our unbelieving state, we don't recognize God. We don't know God. But we recognize that person. And we recognize that person as the same individual who broke into our house and stole our things and then burned down our home. And yet, despite that, we go to that person and we restore them and we take care of them and we provide for them and we forgive them and we bring them into a relationship, a covenantal relationship with ourselves. And that's what Arthur Pink means. And I think he's right. You see, because not only does that person not deserve your kindness, they actually deserve the opposite of your kindness. They deserve your wrath and your anger and your justice. That person is in positive demerit. They are in the negative. They owe a debt against you. We owe a debt against God. Not only do we not deserve God's kindness and goodness and love, we deserve the absolute opposite of that. We deserve the wrath and the anger and the justice of God. So when Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus... He has in mind the unmerited, the undeserved, the unearned favor of God bestowed on those who are in positive demerit. They didn't deserve it. and They didn't earn it. And God doesn't bestow his grace on them because they're such wonderful people. He'll actually go on to say that to them quite clearly in verses 26 and following. He'll say, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You catch that? Paul just called them fools. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, here's why, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When we get to heaven, no one will be able to pat themselves on the back and say, I did something to get here. God may have done 99.99% of it, but I did something to get here. Paul is quite clear in places like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You have been saved by grace through faith, and that, that is the grace and the faith, you have been saved by grace through faith, and that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. 
When we ask the question, what is it that we contribute to our salvation, I think Martin Luther had it right when he said the only thing that we contribute to our own salvation is sin and resistance. God does the rest. And so God gets all the glory. Secondly, he is pointing out to them that God's grace is given to them in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. Those little prepositions are packed with meaning. It's not by Christ Jesus. It's not through the message of Christ Jesus, but rather God's grace comes to them and us in Christ. God's saving grace comes to us by means of our union with Christ. That is to be saved is to be in Christ. To not be saved is to be outside of Christ. I'm not just playing semantics here. Understand, it's not that because we are saved, we are brought into Christ. It is by means of being brought into Christ, are we saved? Christ is the ark into which the Holy Spirit sovereignly brings us and seals us in and safely brings us through the wrath and the justice of God at the day of judgment. We will pass through that day unscathed because we are in Christ. Christ is our salvation. Thus, Paul begins by saying, I am thankful for you and for God's saving grace, which he bestowed upon you in Christ. However, because God bestowed his sovereign saving grace upon them, Paul is also thankful for, verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. In other words, because of God's sovereign saving grace, God has bestowed on them every blessing in the heavenly places. That in every way, he says, you were enriched in him. Paul makes a similar statement to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, In Christ, there it is again, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is because of our union with Christ by faith, we in him and he in us, everything that Christ possesses or will possess becomes ours. Minus deity and authority, right? We don't become gods. Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But other than those two things, because of our union with Christ, everything that Christ possesses, everything that he will possess, we will possess those things. We will reign with Christ on the new earth for all of eternity because of our union with Christ. And that makes sense in light of Jesus' prayer, right? In John 17, 23, his high priestly prayer, 
One of the things he prays for in that prayer is he prays for all believers, and he says, Father, I pray that you will love them, all future believers, that you will love them even as you have loved me. I love that line of his prayer. Because Jesus always gets his prayers answered, always. And what he is praying is that God the Father would love believers, all of you, if you've placed your faith in Christ, that God the Father would love you just as much to the same extent, to the same degree as his only begotten eternal son. That's amazing. God does not love us, God the Father does not love us even a smidgen less than he loves his only son, Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because we are in union with Christ. He loves Christ and all those who are in union with Christ. We are all God's children. Specifically, however, Paul is thankful that they were enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Here, Paul seems to be pointing forward, alluding to chapter 12, specifically verse 8, where he actually mentions these For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And then he'll go on to talk in more detail about many spirits, or many gifts, rather, gifts of the Spirit. There, uh, and in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, the word for uh, speech or utterance is the Greek word logos. The word for knowledge is the Greek word gnosis. The same word, the same word that he's using in chapter 1, verse 5 is the same language that he will use again. He will revisit that in chapter 12, verse 8, as he begins to talk about all of the various gifts of the Spirit. But up front, he recognizes that they have been given many gifts of the Spirit. He tells them that. I am thankful that you have these gifts and many other gifts that God has given to you. But understand that all of these gifts have been given to you as gifts from God. And so this is the second thing that Paul is thankful for. And it's his way of reminding them what whatever gifts they possess have come to them from God. James 1.17 tells us that, right? All good gifts come from God above. Every good thing that you can count in your life, every good thing that you possess, all of your gifts, all of your talents, all of your abilities are all given to us as gifts from God that we have not earned and we do not deserve, right? Because we are, in our unbelieving state, we are in positive demerit. We deserve the opposite from God, let alone saving grace, and then on top of that, whatever gifts and blessings God gives to us. 
So here, Paul is gently already dealing with their pride. He wants them to understand and he wants to remind them that everything that they have comes as a gift from God. And it's an important lesson for all of us to remember because it can become easy to become prideful, especially if you're successful in life or if you're gifted or if you're in, uh, talented or intelligent. We may not consciously think that way. We may not actually verbalize it. But so often in the way that we behave, in the way that we live, in the way that we treat other people, in the way that we treat our spouse or our parents or our children or our friends and neighbors, and in the way in which we treat God. So oftentimes our behavior communicates, I am the center of my universe. And anyone who does not see that will experience my wrath because it's all about me, because I'm so awesome and great and wonderful, and you should just be blessed to be in my presence. Before we condemn the church in Corinth, we ought to first learn to see ourselves in the church in Corinth. And so Paul gently reminds them, that everything that you have, church in Corinth, is a gift given to you from God, and you don't deserve any of it. It's all a result of his grace. And so he goes on to say in verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. By the phrase, the testimony about Christ, it's a reference to the gospel. The Greek word for testimony is also the word that can mean a witness, a witness regarding Christ. So he's referencing the gospel here. And it can be difficult to see the connection uh, between verses 5 and 6. Most uh, English translations uh, have verse 6 set off as sort of a parenthetical statement. They have these little hyphens on both sides, at least they do in the ESV. Because the question becomes, what's the connection between verses 5 and 6? And in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ, that is the gospel, was confirmed among you, that is, was established among you, that you received, you received the gospel. But what does he mean by even as the gospel was established among you? Does he mean despite the gospel being established among you? Does he mean as the gospel was being established among you? What, what exactly is the connection between 5 and 6? I think it's helpful to note that the first word in verse 6 is actually the Greek word kathos. And it can be translated a variety of ways. The most common is even as, which is what the ESV does, even as. Or just as, which is kind of say the same thing. Another very common way that this is brought into the English for us and the meaning that it carries is because of. Because of. And really, I think that's what Paul is saying here. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that was established, that was confirmed among you, that you embraced 
is why these gifts have been given to you and you are enriched in every way. Paul is indicating that the gifts they've received are the evidence of the gospel being embraced by them. Now, that's not to say, and he'll deal with that when we get to uh, chapters uh, 11, 12, and 13. That's not to say that these charismatic gifts are the evidence of salvation. Paul will make that clear in those chapters. They are not. He makes that emphatically clear in places like Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? All of these are internal character transformations, right? The evidence of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of regeneration is having our character transformed into the character of Jesus Christ. It's not charismatic gifts. But nonetheless, he wants them to understand, you see, because they're very prideful about their gifts, and we'll see that later on in the book. They have all these great gifts that no no one else seems to have. They've become very puffed up about their spiritual gifts, but Paul wants them to understand that you only have these gifts because of the gospel that was brought to you by God's grace, because your eyes were opened by the sovereign grace of God. And they have been so blessed, he says in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are not lacking in any gift. Again, there he's alluding to the later chapters where it becomes apparent that they've got them all. I mean, if there's a gift to be practiced, it is in Corinth. And so he acknowledges to them, you're not lacking in any gift. You've got them all. But they are all the result of God's grace and mercy and goodness. It's important for us to remember this. Again, that whatever we have, whatever we possess, whatever talents we have, whatever we become are all brought to us by the sovereign grace of God. Because as soon as we forget this, pride and arrogance will begin to well up within us which is the opposite of humility. And humility is the hallmark of Christianity. And what is humility? How do we define humility? Here's a definition of humility for you. Humility is the proper understanding and recognition of our place in relation to the Creator. I'll say that again. Humility is the proper understanding and recognition of our position in relation to the Creator. He's God, and I am not. He is the Creator, and I am the creature. He is worthy of worship, and my whole reason for existing is to worship God. I live and I exist for His glory and for His praise and for His worship alone. To not do that is to live a life without purpose and meaning. He goes on to say in verses 7 to 8, 
so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is encouraged and thankful for the fact that they will continue to possess these gifts, to use these gifts until the day of Christ's return, toward which God will sustain them till the end. All of this is Paul's overflow of thanksgiving for the believers in Corinth, and here he is thankful and praising God for his sustaining grace. So in other words, in giving thanks for them and in gently already dealing with their pride, he points out to them that not only are you saved and you have the gifts because of the sovereign grace of God, the sovereign, unilateral, monergistic grace of God alone, but what you are, what you have, and where you will be and where you will end up is also the result of God's sovereign grace. That's what Paul means in Philippians 1.6. He says to the church there in Philippi, I am convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete it. Jesus says in John 10, 29, that all those who are saved are in his Father's hands, and he says, and no one can take them out of my Father's hands. You are secure why? Because it's God who does this. It is God and God alone who saves. And God always completes what he begins. God never fails at his mission. What God desires, God gets because God is sovereign. And his plans are never frustrated. That should be a tremendous comfort to all of us. And all of this is because of our union with Christ. Thus, so far, he reminds them that God's saving grace is a gift that they have not earned, that the gifts they have received have come from God, and that it is God who will sustain them to the very end. Everything good that the Corinthians are able to number in their life comes from God, including their eternal destiny. This leads them to the fifth thing for which Paul is thankful to the church in Corinth. We see that in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were able, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Once again, verse 9 can seem a bit disjointed from verses 4 to 8. What's the connection there? It almost seems like he goes off on a bit of a tangent. I think verse 9 is Paul essentially just bursting out in a word of praise and worship for all that God is doing and will do with the church in Corinth. Paul breaks out into praise knowing that God will do all of this and more. Why? Because God is 
faithful. God is faithful, and it is God who sovereignly called them into the fellowship of his son. Thus, he reminds he reminds them, he begins and ends by reminding them of God's sovereign, saving grace. The point is that if God is willing to do all of this for you and to you, how will he not be faithful to complete all that he has begun? It all comes back to our union with Christ, the way he begins I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. We have been brought into the fellowship of his son because of our union with Christ. We brought into a covenant saving relationship with Christ, which is the new covenant, which is an unconditional covenant. Praise God for that that where we end up in eternity ultimately has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. It has nothing to do with law-keeping. In the establishing of the new covenant through the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ, God the Father says, My Son has done everything that needs to be done for your eternal security. All you need to do is rest in Now, that's not to say that we can live any way we want. I think the Reformers were right when they often would say that, yes, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Because true saving faith will always manifest itself in a life lived out for the glory of God. That will happen naturally. But ultimately, it is God that will bring that about. And it, was, it is God who will sustain you. And it is God who will bring you into his eternal presence. In the end, when we look at the rest of 1 Corinthians, this book, beginning with verse 10, we see that this church is a lot like ourselves, right? First Corinthians is a mess. We're a mess. And it's one of the reasons that uh, we uh, chose the name Tapestry for our church. People ask me that a lot, of, a lot of times. Where did that name come from? And we actually sang about it in one of our songs. There was a line that talked about the tapestry of history. Because when you look at a tapestry, it's hanging on a wall. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. But if you ever look at the back of a tapestry, it, it's a mess. If all you saw was the back, you would have no idea what the design could possibly be. And oftentimes, that is what the church, that is what church is, that is what our lives are often like, that we see the back, and we say to ourselves, and we say to God, this is a mess, this doesn't make any sense. But God sees the front, and he says, oh, it makes beautiful sense. Because what I, am do, what I am doing is weaving together a beautiful picture that will be for my glory and for your benefit. And so as we go through this book, 
We should see ourselves in this book. And we always need to remember that God has sovereignly called us and saved us and bestowed all of the gifts upon us that we richly enjoy. And it is God who will sustain us until the end. And for all of that, we can be thankful. We can be thankful. I know that we struggle with issues in life. We all do. Every person in this room is struggling with something in their life that is not going right. But ultimately, like Paul, we can and should be able to see the glass as half full recognizing what God is doing in and through our life for our good and for his glory. And we can also be and should be thankful for those around us who are less than perfect as we are, especially when it comes to the saints. There is always reason to be thankful to God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you for your grace and goodness and love and mercy. And Father, we pray that as we reflect upon um, the lessons that Paul is attempting to communicate to the church in Corinth, Lord, we pray that you would Enable us to apply these truths to our own lives, Father. That we would see your amazing, merciful grace in every area of our lives. And that it would cause us to break out in praise, just as Paul the Apostle did for the church in Corinth. Help us, Lord God, to not focus on the negatives in our lives but to focus on all of the many good things that you have and are and will do in our lives and in this church. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name.